what's up everybody welcome to anthro for the homies once again my i'm your host my name is david j Fernelli, and uh i have a super cool guest today i got a someone who i think is really really interesting um he's working on uh, a, an amazing book uh, robert could you please introduce yourself uh my name is robert vida and i'm an assistant professor of sociology at cal state los angeles cool and uh are you originally from los angeles uh, yeah, I grew up on the west side, um, and my parents divorced when I was five, so they both were kind of moving around a lot, but more or less in Culver City and, and areas surrounding that. Culver City areas surrounding that. How did you eventually get into, I want to talk about your book, but first I want to backtrack a little bit. How did you get into sociology? Like, what what was the, the tipping point for you to decide that you wanted to go out and get educated? Um. Uh, well, those are two separate questions of why I wanted to get educated and why I chose sociology along the way. <laughs> um, getting educated is, I don't know, I was always, I always did pretty well at school. I mean, like when I was in high school, I really didn't care about school. Um, but I would like do the minimum to get by, you know, mm-hmm. like I would always be absent when there was a test or a paper due, you know, but I would always end up making up the test or turning in the paper late <laughs> and, same. And I did well, so prof- so not professors, so teachers would kind of like accept the work and be like, oh, okay, this kid obviously should advance. So, um, yeah, so I graduated high school with a 3.0, um, which, you know, doesn't sound good now, but back then <laughs> was good enough to uh, Sounds great. Uh, get me into college. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did really well on my SATs, so I ended up going to Santa Barbara for undergrad. Um and then my my goal the whole time was basically um, to become a criminal defense attorney. Mm. Um, my plan was like to like you know I'm going to be a defense attorney and I'm going to get all the homies out of jail and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and I like as an undergrad, all of my majors, my classes were chosen with that in mind. Um, I was a poli sci major, a dual major in poli sci and law and society with the emphasis on criminal justice. And was this um, um, and, right after high school for you? Did you go to college? Immediately? Yeah, I went to I went to college right out right out of high school. Okay, cool. Um, and like I said, I basically got in on my SAT scores, not on my GPA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, even like my last year of college, I did an internship with the Public Defender Service in Washington D.C. because I was still that was kind of my plan. Um, and then I took a couple years off uh, after college. And ended up applying to like half a dozen law schools and half a dozen grad schools. Um, and at the time, I'm sure you'll end up asking me about that kind of stuff too. I was pretty active um, on, a, on a number of levels. And so I was basically anticipating that I would end up catching a felony. And I thought that like if I go to law school right now and then I catch a felony, boom, my career's gone. That'd be, you know, that wouldn't be no good. So no. Um, so I decided I'm going to go to grad school instead. I got offered like some good deals to go to grad school um, at a couple different schools. And so I took one of them, um, which was in New York. I went to NYU for grad school. Wow. And I told myself, oh, you know, after grad school, I can always go to law school or I can do a dual program or whatever. But once I kind of got into, you know, my career, um, I kind of lost interest in going to law school. And what was the what was your grad school program in? Once again, um, it was just straight sociology, straight sociology, which is I always advise students going to grad school. Um, 
if for the job market, if for no other reason that you guys should really think about, you know, big field departments, you want to be in social or anthro or poli sci or econ or, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 As cool as interdisciplinary and, you know, whatever ethnic studies or whatever other type of, you know, like when you hit the job market, it's a lot easier to get a job if you're in one box of one major field or the other, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Of course. And that was advice that I had gotten when I was applying to grad school and it worked out well for me. So. And you got your uh, PhD from NYU? Yeah, my master's and my PhD are from NYU. It's uh, in my field, as with an anthro, um, most R1s, um, it's what they called a, um, a terminal PhD program. So you enter after undergrad and you're expected to get your master's along the way, mm-hmm. but it's really a PhD program. So you're a doctoral student from the beginning. Damn. And so you stayed um, consistent in college th- this uh, from you took a small break, you said, between uh, I took a couple years off. Yeah. OK. And uh, d- during that time, you mentioned that you were active. Um, I mean, wh- wh- what does that mean uh, if you want to get into it a little bit? I mean, I don't want to you know, incriminate myself, but <laughs> of I was course not. like ever since I was a kid, um, I was always into like graffiti and gangs and, you know, hustling and like basically the street life, you know, mm-hmm. Um and wherever I went, you know, that was kind of my get down. Um, and it started, actually it started in fifth grade is when I first started like all that, you know, little smoking weed and tagging and getting into fights and that kind of thing. Neighborhood stuff. Um, yeah. And then, you know, like when I was in high school, I was <clears throat> from, I, won't, I don't want to say what my affiliation was, but I mm-hmm. was affiliated with a little neighborhood where I grew up. Um, and, um, as I got older, you know, I, I, I took on other affiliations. And even when I was in New York in grad school, I, I got into, I got down with something out there too. So. <laughs> in New York too? <laughs> oh, so I have affiliations. Yeah, I have affiliations on the East and the West Coast. So <laughs> actually I have affiliations from Miami too. So I'm like, I've been all over. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. And so that kind of brings me to a, a book that um, you happen to be writing because in the book, in the opening, you share a story um, from, from when you were younger and, you know, one of your friends was unfortunately killed in um, what was seemingly like a, a, a race style shooting. Would, would you call it that? Is it accurate to say that? Um, yeah. So the book is about, you know, interracial conflict between um, black and Chicano between African-American and Chicano gangs here in LA, mm-hmm. South Siders, Crips and Bloods. Um, and, and so these are, you know, racialized conflicts, but they're not, in my opinion, at least, they're not racial conflicts in the sense that racial ideology is the reason for them. It's, um, you know, uh, uh, racial identities are used to define them, um, but the the source of the conflicts never really has to do anything to do with race. It's just like, if you hate someone, you know what I mean? You're going to try and kill them. You're going to try and hurt them. And you're going to demean their, you know, racial identity. And that's how you're going to conceive it of, of it. If they're, uh, if they have a different racialized identity than you do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a big issue here in Southern California, especially in Los Angeles mm-hmm. for generations, really, you know, like when I was a kid, we had race riots at high schools every year and, you know, and that stuff, kind of stuff still goes on. You know, there's, you know, a lot of beef between black and Mexican gangs, um, you know, between Southsiders and Crips and Bloods mm-hmm. in, all over different parts of L.A. County, you know. And of course, um, for many years, there was, a, a, you know, racial animosity between the different racialized factions in prison here in California. <coughs> so, um, yep. 
um, you know, it's the, it's an issue. <laughs> yeah. To, um, to say the and, least. And as you mentioned, you know, like I, I grew up in an area where, you know, I was, we were kind of like the auxiliary, the junior squad for two major gangs in our area, Culver city and 18th street. Mm. And both Culver city and 18 had, had racialized beef with black gangs in the area. Um, and so that was kind of like a fact of our existence when I was growing up, you know? And so like, I, I opened the book with this story about, um, my homeboy that was, that was murdered as a result of one of these beefs. Um, but I'm not sure that I would really like call it, uh, you know, it wasn't, the the reason he was killed was not race you know what i mean the reason he was killed is is over a gang beef yeah um you mentioned that um the the whole race concept started with the labor divide essentially and you know the division of race helps keep uh this this labor divide going um can you get into that a, a little bit more from from like a sociological perspective yeah from a historical perspective really um I'll give you kind of like the short version, right? Which is, you know, the book is ostensibly about gangs, um, but it's maybe I should introduce the book first, right? <laughs> um, so the title of the book is um, Divide and Conquer, because that's basically what's happened to us, right? Mm -hmm. um, Divide and Conquer, Race, Identity, Gangs, and Conflict. Or Race, Gangs, Identity, and Conflict. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> um, and it's uh, signed with Temple University Press. We expect it probably be published at the end of 2021 or maybe beginning of 2022. Wow. Um, and ostensibly it's about, you know, like I said, interracial gang between, you know, black and, and Chicano gangs here in LA. Um, but really it's not so much about gangs. It's more about race, about the race concept and the role that the race concept plays in a racial capitalist society. Um, <clears throat> and, and gangs is really just like a case study in how the race concept operates to divide us and, and how the race concept is practiced here in content in, you know, in the contemporary period, how that differs from, from earlier times. Um, and so where, you know, like got to think about where does the race concept come from, right? Like most people we grew up with, we've all grown up with the race concept and that's been the case for generations. Yeah, unfortunately. So we kind of, you know, um, assume that it's a natural part of life. You know, like we, we, we kind of assume that there's some kind of like, you know, uh, inherent basis to it. And there's not, right? It's Hell a historical no. construct. We know where the race concept came from. We know when it was invented. We know why it was invented. You know, this is all really well-documented history. Um, so it's, and of course we know that there's no biological race basis for race, mm -hmm. right? Um, the race concept is, is purely a vehicle um, for, for division, right? Um, and the the history of it lies in, you know, it's kind of like um, an incremental history um, for the first couple of hundred years. You know, the first time that that the word that we use race or in Spanish raza was applied to human beings was in the you know around the turn of the um, 16th century. You know, like when Columbus made his voyage and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, but it wasn't really um, without going into too much detail about the Reconquista and all that, um, the race concept as we know it really didn't crystallize um, until the turn of the 18th century um, in, in Virginia colony, in Jamestown and mm -hmm. the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. um, 
and the reason for it is that kind of the the one point in time that historians like the primary historians of this um topic um you know in my mind the preeminent historian on this issue is uh, theodore allen um he has a um a, a two volume uh set called the invention of whiteness mm-hmm. really you know core historical reading yep yep um and and basically you know there was this um this rebellion bacon's rebellion that occurred in 1676 um that you know the the basis of it is it's it's not like you know it was an ignominious affair <laughs> let's put it that way you know that it wasn't like you know some you know there wasn't any uh what's the word i'm looking for um it wasn't a benevolent you know endeavor let's put it that way mm. um but what happened is that that um the working the labor populations of the colony all united you know black white um uh the 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 indentured labor populations and the free labor populations basically everybody rose up in rebellion against the um the ruling class of the colony and basically chased the ruling class out of town you know stormed jamestown burned it to the ground looted all of the you know ruling elites houses and all that the governor uh, berkeley had to jump in a boat to escape mm-hmm. famously <laughs> um, famously so they basically yeah just like you know tore everything up and so in the that scared the shit out of the ruling classes right so um um they had to think of like well what can we use to divide the labor population so that they don't you know form like voltron and and try and take <laughs> our head off right and so the race concept is is the vehicle that they invented in order to keep you know the the blue lion and the yellow lion fighting each other or 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 the white and the black lion or you know today here in LA the black and the brown lion you know what i'm saying yeah yeah uh, so unfortunate and so it was actually you know like they 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 intentionally created this concept as a legal category right mm-hmm. um and sold it to the white labor population you know like they actually had to like pitch this to the white labor population hey you know what you're actually white and they're black and you have you know certain legal you know privileges and advantages over them you know like Jesus. this is this is good for you you know what i mean so um of course that wasn't a hard sell yeah, of <laughs> <right>? course <not. laughs> and uh you know people you know within a generation you know white people in america in american colonies um you know realized the the advantage that that whiteness afforded them so mm-hmm. uh, ever since then um you know i say that it's a self-regulating uh system of labor management and mm. social control and the reason it's self-regulating is because since then it uses the 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 labor population to regulate itself in that the white working classes enforce the race concept on the black no, on the non-white working classes mm. originally you know african americans who were relegated to you know um chattel slavery but you know throughout american history you see um that it's you know up until the 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 you know contemporary period it's the white working classes that enforce race basically right through violence you know number one yeah. um, through legal you know um you know structures um well you know, it yeah like this is you know the white people are the ones that benefit from this and the white people are the ones that enforce it mm-hmm. right and that had always been the case up until the civil rights 
movement era in the 1960s when the civil rights acts of 64 and 68 were passed right and mm -hmm. they um ostensibly at least <laughs> outlawed um you know the type of legally uh, uh mandated you know, the legal racism yeah jim crow yeah, yeah which yeah. jim crow you know jim crow isn't just white people throwing sheets over their heads and burning crosses on people's lawn and murdering people and stuff like that it's a lot of legal you know, stuff all that, too. All that domestic terrorism it's it's a legal system mm -hmm. right it's it's a system, system of of laws that exist and formally you know relegate it's it's a system of apartheid right it's a legal system um and so that was you know ostensibly abolished in the in the 60s, 60s. with the civil rights acts you know now of course the civil rights acts are you know toothless there's they're not you know the, the way the supreme court has interpreted them the um the bar of evidence is so high it's practically impossible to bring a case of racial bias mm -hmm. um successfully it's you know it's very difficult the standard is specific intent yeah. which is a higher legal standard than any other you know in american jurisprudence which is um, but but what's important relevant. is that it, it did the one thing that the civil rights act did is it did put an end to all of that you know kind of blatant um formal legal racism yeah the right? the, the blatant kind though <laughs> yeah it's still, so still like, very over exactly oh for sure there's you know racism hasn't gone anywhere by any means right no. the civil rights no, act I, didn't didn't put didn't didn't put an end to racism no and it's still being fueled in some sense by laws especially when you you look at the drug war and, and things like that but you know you mentioned um the original sort of definition of, of white and, and what it meant to be white working class and as an anthropologist i think it's so funny because like that term white or who is considered white or a white person was constantly changing also, right? Like I remember uh, learning at first, I believe like, you know, Italians and Jews weren't considered those white. They were more the ethnic Europeans. So they weren't allowed to, to be in that white. And it's constantly changing based on who it serves most or, or who it serves better. And it's, it's fucked up that it's still that this way and it's self-regulating like you said that's a really really um brilliant way of, of putting it that it's self-regulating and having this concept of race is so necessary essentially in today's society especially a capitalist society that you know race and capitalism go hand in hand essentially yeah so um so a lot of scholars you know use this terminology racial capitalism mm -hmm. um, which is you know essentially the system we live under um, but the problem is, is a lot of scholars kind of think of race and capitalism as two, you know, interconnected but distinct concepts, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When really they're one in the same concept. They're, you know, race is not an, you know, a lot of, a lot of scholars conceptualize race as an independent variable. Race is a dependent variable based on capitalism, right? Capitalism came first chronologically you mm -hmm. know historically mm -hmm. and the race concept came out of capitalism and the race concept was invented at, to play a specific role within capitalism of labor management and and social control right so so you can't get rid of racism and keep capitalism yeah. you know that's a problem a lot of like you know these reformist perspectives that that you know are you kind of dominate the mainstream right they they act like we can do something about racism 
but we can leave capitalism the way it is, right? Like capitalism needs racism. Yeah. You know, capitalism, racism was invented in order to to um, perpetuate capitalism, to prevent the type of solidarity and you know and rebellion, you know that that occurred in in the in you know Bacon's rebellion in the right? years they're, past. They're basically trying to keep Jamestown from burning down again. Once again, <laughs> right? once again, and they need that. And unless, I mean, who knows what the future holds? Unless there's some other basis that can be invented to divide labor populations, mm. right, in this country then you know race is it race is the primary axis of division in our society and and that's no accident right that's not a historical no, that's no. a historical you know construct it was created that way for a bit to serve a very specific purpose right yeah and the um the uh <laughs> the original sort of uh colonizers that that came here unfortunately were really good at the, the whole divide and conquer strategy and and so them being able to develop all these different tools like rate, like first capitalism and, and then race. And it's still, like I said, it's still apparent today. So this idea of um, the divide, is that what you mean by, um, it, it, I read in your book, uh, you have a line saying that, you know, you hope this, this book sort of to be an epiphany um, for gang members and people in jail. Is that part of the epiphany that you're talking about? The sort of awakening to the fact that, hey, the reason why all, you guys have been fighting each other for, for a lot of years, well, one of the reasons why the racial category is bullshit. Is that the epiphany that, that you're talking about? Yeah, so, you know, we've, I mean, I was just as guilty of this when I was a kid too. You know, it took me years to really, you know, have this epiphany come to this epiphany myself um but you know we've been getting played you know we we went down the rabbit hole not, you know not us but our our predecessors you know in the mm -hmm. 60s and 70s mm -hmm. went down a rabbit hole and we never looked back you know we just kind of take this for granted that like you know that chicanos are are this and and african americans are that and you know white people are this or whatever you know and we've put ourselves in these different categories um, and even as people who are, um, you know, subordinate populations, right, put themselves in different categories, opposing one another, not just vis-a-vis -vis white people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, like, for generations, we've been fighting each other. You know, like, we, we're basically like the instruments of our own oppression. We're the ones, and that's, in my opinion, that's really what's, what's unique about the contemporary period, the post-civil rights period, um, is that prior to the civil rights period, it was white people who enforced racial boundaries and who you know, um, imposed racial identity on others and, and claimed racial identity for themselves. But today, people of color are like, you know, have deputized themselves. They're like the new sheriff in town, yeah. <laughs> right? They, yeah. you know, now, you know, I, you know, we we live in this like identity politics era. That's the term, you know, the contemporary term, identity politics. Huge buzzword, right? right Which there. is people of color themselves, the people who suffer the effects of the race concept, right? The people who actually are the victims of racial oppression have now embraced the race concept themselves, right? They've they've taken this 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 idea that was created to divide and oppress them. And now they're the, the the greatest defenders of it. They're the ones that enforce the boundaries. 
between themselves and others between different races yeah right? yeah and, and and you know interracial gang conflict is like the most you know uh you know the most extreme form of that yeah yeah um it's uh it's uh it's, it's really sad now um because it's more relevant i feel like this past year than ever before like like you're talking about and what seems to be born out of uh something wholesome right like you know the essentially the the movement and you know racial movements on at their core they have this uh notion of, of being good right of of be, be people coming together and taking back what's theirs and, and taking back their rights and so i could think of so many different movements across the country like the black lives matter movement and the land back movement within the native americans mm -hmm. and um like I said, it, it just, they, they have this, uh, they seem to be born out of good, but unfortunately they just keep fueling the divide like you're talking about. Um, what do you think can be done? Because certainly like, okay, I got, I have a, a, a American looking flag, but it's a Sarape pattern. So it's like a conglomerate of a Ch my Chicano culture, right? Like in your mind or in your opinion, what can be done so that people can still be, proud of their culture and proud of their heritage but not keep fueling these racial divides or put or not keep pigeonholing ourselves into racial categories like what do you think can be done to still be sort of proud of your roots and then not fulfill the you know the racial divide still maybe i'll throw a question back at you and ask you why why are you proud of of your heritage and and what well, what does it do for you? What, what's the, why, why is that important to you? Or maybe not for you personally, but like more generally, why is that, why can't we get, why can't we let that go? People feel like it's so closely tied to their identity. Like it's literally like them, like, you know what I'm saying? And a threat to their racial identity is taken quite literally like a physical threat to themselves. At least, you know, at least that's what I think from watching the news and seeing all these stupid stories these past year of people at each other's throats because of this stuff. It's just, it's, uh, but let's think about why, why is, you know, why are nationalist identities so attractive to people in our society? Right. Why, why did we, I mean, we all grew up with this, you know, like I used mm -hmm. to be a nationalist, you know, identitarian myself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, uh, I, even though I identify as Chicano, I wasn't, uh, I'm not of Mexican descent at all. My father's um, an ethnic Kurd from Iran. So to me, um, you know, that was my identity, mm -hmm. right? So and I was proud of being Kurdish and, you know, I would have a Kurdish flag and, you know, I, all that kind of shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and then, you know, like I just started thinking like, what, oh, what the fuck does being Kurdish have to do with the material circumstances of my life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. you know, there like uh, the, the material life circumstances of my life are defined by my own experiences, not by the experiences of other people who, who may share some identity, whatever that means. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So, and, and, you know, another reason I think that these um, identities are so attractive to people in our society um, is, is that, you know, the capitalist system doesn't give us very much in our material lives to be proud of. Right. Mm. So by being proud of 
our ancestors' accomplishments and, you know, our heritage and so on and so forth. Like it kind of gives us a, a sense of self-worth when, you know, <laughs> we really don't have much to base a, a sense of self-worth based on our material circumstances yeah, in the society we live in. You it, know what I'm saying? So it, it certainly doesn't surprise me. You know, I, I fully understand why people, why these identities appeal to people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my point is that identity is not an intrinsic part of the human experience. It's a, it's really a very, you know, recent development in human history. You know, like even in the, um, you know, uh, even in the Middle Ages, like identity, the, the way that we think of, you know, racial or ethnic identity was not important to people even like where my father's from just a couple of hundred years ago being kurdish is not you know doesn't you know put you in one category or another like people people's identities were to you know according to their you know aligned with their own immediate community yeah people that they knew personally yeah yeah, yeah. face to face right and this is one of the key facets of nationalism as an ideology is it makes you think that you have this like kind of primordial connection to a whole group of people who presumably share your identity, mm -hmm. but really you don't know each other and you don't have any interaction with each other and your interests may or may not align on any number of different issues. And, you know, you may not even fucking like each other, <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, know? but, but that I did that idea of identity, whether it be racial or ethnic or, I don't know, whatever gender, religious, whatever groupist identity, you know, appeals to you, mm -hmm. makes you feel like you have a connection to these people and that their accomplishments are somehow your accomplishments and their, their, you know, um, trials and tribulations, you know, you share in whether you actually do or not in a material sense, you know, yeah, the Kurds are an oppressed people in Turkey and, you know, other parts of the Middle East, but does that does their oppression affect me in any material sense? No, not here in Los Angeles. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, you, your book, you know, reading that in your book, reading it in your book pointed out that it's hypocritical to be like, oh, all these, you know, um, the Proud Boys and all these white nationalist groups and damn them, damn them, damn them, and then me say that I'm I'm proud of my Mexican heritage, and it got me. Uh, just sort of reevaluating that statement. And then as an anthropologist, I started thinking and going back and going back and, and being like, okay, well, you know, I, I know what that means, but really like, what does it mean? Does it mean that I'm more, should I be more tied to the indigenous part of the heritage or should I be more tied to the, the colonizer part or should I embrace both of them? And then like, how far back should I be proud to be Mexican? Like when, the country started like the year it started or you know and so i started thinking of all these things and i was like holy crap like i never never thought of it like that and another point i thought of too is like the idea of, of a tribe and taking it back like way back like you know maybe uh i don't know 50 60 70 80,000 years 100,000 years ago people presumably i don't think would have been like oh that person over there i, I can't I can't break bread with them and I can't build fire with them because they have a different skin color than me. Right. I feel, I, I don't, I don't know. This is all speculation, but I feel like past tribes and past peoples would have had more empathy for one another without these like geopolitical boundaries or any sort of race boundary. Let's talk a little bit about what you, you mentioned right there um, mm -hmm. of prehistoric societies. Right. Oh, okay. Um, you don't need to speculate because, you know, thanks to, you know, a wonderful cohort of, 
paleoanthropologists, you know, over the last 50, 100 years, we know a lot about um, how human beings lived um, prior to sedentary agriculture. Mm. We know who the first human beings who settled uh, into semi um, uh, sedentary communities. We know who the first ones who were uh, settled into permanent sedentary communities. We know a lot about their li- their their lives and and their lifestyle and and their relationships with one another and so forth. Um, the the first people, the first human population to to semi settle, you know, to 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 farm, you know, to intentionally, um, you know, return to the same area to to gather, you know, food that they knew would be growing there because of they had either planted it or left some trash there the, the, um, the previous year, you know, period they'd been there. Um, we call them the Tufians, um, who were the human population living in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East mm. um, 10 to 12,000 years ago, um, during a time that the Middle East was not a desert. It was one of the most, you know, bountiful regions on Earth, you know. Mm. Um, and these were the first people who, um, you know, they were hunter-gatherers, but they, you know, probably by accident noticed that, you know, they would make a little camp and, you know, they would pick, you know, um, the, the Fertile Crescent has a lot of really useful plants and animals um, indigenous to it. And so many of the, pretty much all of the animals that we use for meat, you know, in, in any large scale today were indigenous to the Fertile Crescent. And many, uh, I think all of the grains that we use, um, wheat, barley, oat, um, many of the legumes, beans, you know, so like there's really a, you know, this is, this must be where the, the, the Garden of Eden, you know, myth comes from. Of course. Mm -hmm. The Fertile Fertile Crescent really was a Garden of Eden 10, 12,000 years ago. And it wasn't very heavily populated either. You know, uh, paleoanthropologists, I think have estimated that there were maybe 2000 families living in the whole Middle East at that time, right? And so think about it, like if there's only like maybe, you know, less than 10,000 people out there, right? And you can only walk 10 miles a day, like how often are you gonna see other people, right? You're, you're basically gonna be traveling with the people that, you know, you grew up with, your, your, your immediate tribe. family and, and, you know, your, your tribe or your, you know, band, band. or whatever you wanna call it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you run into like, Think right now we've been we all been on quarantine for nine months right? <laughs> and like think you've been in the house with the same people all day you know, every day for so long like when you finally you know think about it, like you've been traveling with the same damn people for you know six months or you know however long and finally you run into some other people are you gonna kill them no you're gonna be like Fuck yeah, I'm so happy to see you guys. Oh, I'm so fucking sick of these people right here. Like, thank God I have someone else to kick it with and talk to you for a second. Yeah, you know where you mean? been at? Where's the where's the good hunting at? Where's all the animals at? <laughs> let's, let's let's go kill this gazelle together, you know. What's up with the berries? Bread, you know? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It just yeah. doesn't make sense that, you know, and we really don't see um it's actually uh, I'll mention uh, an alternative perspective. You know, there's a recent paper published by a paleoanthropologist looking at um uh, kind of cataloging all of the wounds that we know of that have been found in, um, I think in Neanderthal, but also in in, in Homo sapien populations, and mm-hmm. suggesting that you know prior to civ- prior to quote unquote civilization, you know that that there was a lot of interpersonal violence, um, and I disagree with that. I think a lot of paleoanthropologists disagree with that. Um, we don't know what the circumstances. First of all, we don't know what the circumstances of the wounds that have been found were whether they were accidental or intentional or 
or whether they were over, you know, jilted love or, or, or between different groups, we really don't know what the circumstances of them were. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that type of argument is really reading a lot into something that we really don't know those cultural, you know, things. Um, Speculation, but but what we, you know, what we can, what we can, I think we can say with pretty, uh, with, you know, a fair amount of confidence is that interpersonal and group violence was not endemic to, um, you know, the way of life that human beings lived for almost all of their existence, you know, like think about cave paintings, right? We have some pretty old cave paintings, you know, in, in Europe, um, in, in Africa, in Australia, you know, tens of thousands of years old. Mm. And what's the subject? What do you find painted on the caves? Of course, if someone's going to make a cave painting, they're going to put on there, like what's important to them in their life. Right. Of course. And what do you see? You see the animals, animals that they hunt, people, you know, shit like that. Plants. But what do we not see? We do not see depictions of interpersonal violence between human beings. No, no. Right? You um, really find no evidence of that in any type of human art or, you know, cave painting or rock painting or whatever you want to call it. No, on Until the contrary. only about, you know, I forgot what it is like. I think the oldest ones they found are like 6,000 years or something like that in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so like, and this is, these are already communities that are more or less sedentary, you know, so it's, all of like the, the, you know, the, think of identity too, you know, like, you know, if you're in, in a hunter gathering band, that's traveling from one place to another, you know, and this month you're in this Valley and next month you're, you know, or it's really not month, my month, it's seasonal. Seasonal. And right? so this, this winter you're down in this Valley and this summer you're up in that mountain and, you know, mm-hmm. then the next summer you're down in a different Valley and so on and so forth. How can you really identify with any geographical location at all? where you, the valley that you were born in may not be, you know, your parents may have been born in a mountain hundred miles away. Yeah. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like everybody in the community originated in the same place. And so just the idea that we have an identity, mm-hmm. you know, that our identity is, is attached to some type of location is really only possible because of sedentary agriculture, you know? So like, yeah. we really need to wipe, this is the challenge, right? Is that we need to like, as, as, as modern people realize that like the fundamental, you know, frameworks of our lives are a historical social construction. They exist because we think they exist. Mm-hmm. They're not an, an integral part of the human existence. And really, they're really, an, you know, if you look, you know, back through historical record, they're an aberration in human existence. Mm-hmm. You know, Homo sapiens are, oh. made, are at least 200,000 years old. And as we're finding out, we're actually not even a, we're not even homo sapiens. We're a hybrid of homo sapiens and at least, as far as we know now, at least five other hominid popula- populations, mm, some of which stretch back and... millions of years. Yeah. You know I mean? And it's only in the last few thousand years that these interpersonal violence and, and property and identity and all of these things that we think are such an integral part of our existence really are, you know, at best a few thousand years old the people were so complex right people are so complex so the more you put people together and the more people you have together and the more people you have to take care of as society you know went from bands and then tribes and then they got much bigger and much bigger we it led to led to problems it led to a lot of problems and eventually folks figured out how to, how to control other folks and it it works it, it works like it, it works like a charm
What's up, folks? Thanks so much for tuning in to part one of this episode. I ended up breaking it up into two parts, part one and part two, because it was a little bit of a long one and it had so much great information. I wanted to make sure that the info was easily digestible for us all. So thanks so much for tuning in. And as always, please don't forget to share Anthro with the homies, with all of your homies, or maybe at least five of them. Please hit subscribe, share this podcast, and leave me a review. Please let me know what you thought. Let me know what you think about what Robert has to say, because it's pretty incredible stuff. Thank you very much, everybody, and uh, hope you tune in for part two.